Jeremiah is no shrinking flower. This is the text that is being read all over the world today. These scriptures that we read are from the lectionary, my go-to, my default when I don't have a better idea. It wasn't supposed to be quite so connected with last week. It wasn't intended to be a continuation of a conversation on the consequences of human disobedience to God's plan, God's role, God's job description of us as the gardeners. And yet here we are. A hot wind will blow, a scorching breath that turns the fruitful land into desert. Here we are, right following last week, where we spoke about grief, about giving ourselves time, space, permission, an opportunity to grieve what we have seen happen around the world and in our county as the environment has been degraded, as we see less and less wild animals, as we see the consequences of human greed and short-sightedness wreaked on the land. We don't like grieving very much because it too often turns into despair and a sense of helplessness. And we don't like associating God with disaster. We like our God to be the God of Jesus, the God of love, the God of good things, reconciliation. We don't like to talk about a God that scorches the earth with a fiery breath. We don't like to be reminded that God does not just grieve God can also get angry. Where Jeremiah looks out on the earth and says, I looked and all the earth was formless and void. Jeremiah is aware that what humans have done in his century, and I argue in our century as well, is nothing less than attempting to undo the act of creation. In the beginning, the earth was formless and void. It's the same phrase. Things were chaotic and jumbled up, tossed apart. And what was formless and void in Genesis 1-1, God brought light and order and called it good. What humans have made formless and void in Jeremiah 4 kindles God's anger. It is wrath that we see. And coming from our conversation on creation care, on the failings of us as a species in the last 100, 200 years to take care of the infinitely precious species, infinitely precious environments, and infinitely precious children that we have been given, our failure to take care of the future, 
This wrath kindled is a fearsome thing indeed to contemplate. What will the future hold? What's 2050, 2080, the year 2100 going to look like if we keep on as we're keeping on? Which is why today I'm also grateful that the lectionary takes us to Luke 15. A seemingly contradictory counterbalance to Jeremiah 4. God rejoicing like a shepherd over one sheep, like a woman over one coin. Rejoicing so much that you wonder if the expense of the party, of the celebration, doesn't overshadow the value of the recovery. I mean, when the shepherd invites all of his friends saying, come over, rejoice, we're going to slaughter a... Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> when the woman invites her friends over saying, come, rejoice with me, I'm going to be serving... Now, hold on. How much is that going to cost? That's not the point. In fact, maybe that not being the point is the point. The joy over the celebration overshadows the value of what was recovered. That's the kernel of the story, similar to the prodigal son, right? Where it's this sense of personal attachment and ownership that Jesus is stringing out. God doesn't just value you because in terms of dollars and cents, you're worth it. God values you because you belong to God. Because there's a sense of ownership. And so when what is lost is found, the joy is not proportionate to the value in terms of dollars and cents for what was lost. God, which was so distant from us, God who's we, who we see in the orbits of the planets, in the turning of the spheres, God whose anger is kindled at sinful nations and whose wrath blights out whole swaths of landscape. God is filled with joy at the return of one little sheep. Ours is a God of passion. Ours is not a God that is separated off or somehow walled apart, kept to himself. Ours is a God that feels things deeply, feels things keenly. And when we look around our world, we ask, we have to ask ourselves, is God angry or happy? Is God furious with us or filled with joy? And what the passages today invite us to contemplate is that the fact is, if God's spirit is the spirit of truth, if God is big, if God is in all and with all, then the fact is that God is, of course, both. This vision of a God that is both filled with fury and overcome with joy is one that First Timothy, and relating to that God, the uncomfortableness of relating to that God, is something that First Timothy brings to us beautifully and boldly in the words of Paul. Paul, who 
lived through his young life with the unsettling feeling that he might be doing something terribly wrong and then came suddenly to realize that there was a God of love and grace that was bigger than his God of justice and order and doing things the way they'd always been done before. And that that God of love and grace was willing to take him up and use him as a person filled with this mixture of rancor and happiness. Filled with this complicated reality that what we do angers God and how we turn our hearts fills God with joy. Jesus came to save sinners is this phrase that Paul does not coin. Paul actually quotes. He says that it has been well established. It is right to say Jesus came to save sinners. I like to think that that might actually be the oldest quote from the New Testament. I think it reflects the earliest convictions of the church. And I think it becomes even stronger for us here in the 21st century when we remind ourselves that the Greek, which says Jesus came to save sinners, could also be translated that Jesus came to heal criminals. The word for salvation and healing is the same word. The word for sinner and criminal is the same. When you think of a God who comes to heal criminals, perhaps that helps us understand how God could be this insane mixture of hot and cold, of fire and water. Criminals have done real harm. They have hurt somebody. They have damaged. When, when David says in the psalm we read, against you and you alone I have sinned, I don't think we're understanding that correctly if we think David's trying to get himself off the hook and saying, oh, it's just against God that I've sinned. All of you guys, I'm doing great. Because if you read the stories of what David did, that's pretty transparently not the case. David hurt a lot of people with his sins. Bathsheba, Uriah, who he got killed so that he could be with Bathsheba. The way he raised his son Absalom, the way he treated the nation of Israel. What Jesus is, what, what David is saying is that against you and you uniquely I have sinned. Because in a position of leadership and king, the sins, the individual sins that David committed against individual people are vastly overshadowed by his spiritual sin of role modeling evil in front of the people. Where God lifted him up to be seen, he was seen doing wrong. And so he sinned uniquely against God. And yet, God holding this sin against him is the, the, the turning point of the, of the psalm. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Jesus came to heal criminals. But that doesn't mean deciding that the criminals, that the crimes somehow had no consequences. 
Just because God is the, the most gravely offended party doesn't mean that we ignore all the other people who have been hurt. How could we? Anything less than anger, than burning anger in the face of injustice, in the face of violation, in the face of destruction, anything less than God being angry at sin would be to betray the very laws of cause and effect. To say you have caused a terrible outcome, but it, it doesn't matter? No, God cannot, will not ever do that. The laws of, un, in, of justice are the laws of cause and effect. They undergird our reality. I can't imagine living in a universe without it. God must be angry in the face of what we are doing to this planet, to one another. Anything else is impossible for the Most High, the Almighty. But as powerfully as God feels anger, it appears from these scriptures and from the testimony of the Holy Bible that God's joy is even more powerful. If the rage is a burning fire, the joy is overflowing water that quenches the flames and turns ashes from a sign of desolation into fertilizer, ready to pop with new life. And it's not because we're so good. I remind you again of the joy of the shepherd over one sheep, the joy of the widow over one coin. It's not because we're worth it. As though God weighs the consequences of anger and says, well, they may have caused the extinction of one salamander species, but on the other hand, that let 200 people have jobs and nice families. So on the balance, I'm going to say no. God is not weighing our sin against our return to God, our return, our, the turning of our hearts. They are not on one scale set one against the other. If there were, what justice could there be for a species that causes the extinction of another species except extinction? We would already be wiped out by the time the, do- the last dodo died if that were the scales of justice. But it's not. No, the joy of God As you repent, as I repent, as we as a people repent, goes way beyond our worth. Goes way beyond any sense of balancing the scales. Have you ever seen someone be angry and joyful at the same time? It seems kind of impossible. Figure your face would end up maybe looking something like this, right? Just, how do you even hold all that at the same time? And yet, I think that that expression right there is an insight into God's character. A window into the mind of the Creator. Let me tell you a story. Imagine that you have come home with a beautiful young pup dog. You've been wanting a dog your entire life, ever since you were licked on the face as a child, but your cruel and oppressive parents never let you have one. And now 
you finally got your own agency. You go out and you get your own dog and she's perfect. Gorgeous. But high energy. Gets out the back door. Makes a beeline for the trees. And now you've spent two hours driving around your neighborhood slowly with your windows rolled down, yelling princess at startled joggers. Three hours. Four hours, it's gotten dark, you give up. And you come home to be greeted with a wet nose and a wagging tail and half a sofa. (laughs) That sofa cost you ten hundred thousand times more than the dog did. And yet, your face might look a little bit like this. So the expression is starting to make a little bit more sense now. Getting what you want, but not the way you want it. We always talk about how we have to get used to that. That's how God answers prayers, right? We, you, you'll get what you need. Get what you want, but not the way you want it. Well, welcome to God's world. God desires our hearts. God desires our righteous acts. God desires our justice and our mercy. But we don't always get around to it in the way God would like. And the consequences for that are real. There will be fallout for the sofa incident. But the love of that dog outweighs your affection for any number of expensive sofas. And our faces, although they may strain at the job, can express anger and joy at the same time. An expression that I believe does reflect the character of God. When we feel anger and joy in a moment, when you can cry and also feel like all will be well, when you can let your heart crack open with the fullness of fury and glee all in one snap of the fingers, then you know that you have brushed up against the live wire that is the Holy Spirit. Then you know that you are encountering something greater than yourself. Those moments, that, that, that tiny experience, that hint at the reality of God's lived experience, can blot out a lifetime of sin. According to First Timothy, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. I'm sorry, according to Psalm 51, David, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. We don't know what these folks have done in their lives. 
But you can see the grief and relief. The joy at human connection. The sorrow at human destruction. You can see that these people in this photograph, in this moment, are brushing up against that live wire. And it fills them. A grace that overshadows much and blots out iniquities. We plea for God's forgiveness in the face of global climate change, in the face of human-caused animal extinctions, and more than that, in the face of broken families, in the face of kids who do terrible, cruel things, not because anybody forced them to or even told them to, but just out of boredom, in the face of wealthy executives who extract another dollar at the cost of an entire life. We plead for forgiveness not based on promises or plans where we say, okay, God, we are going to turn around and act a different way and here's how and here's how we're going to get there. This is the program. We're getting with it. It would be nice if we came to God like that. It would be lovely if we were able to. But the fact is, most of the time, we come to God knowing that our transgressions, our sins are ever before us. That they are still in our future as much as in our past. That knowing that God is justified to pass judgment. And yet we say, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. We don't approach God asking for forgiveness because we've beaten our demons and now we can be different. We approach knowing that God is merciful and asking for the ability to beat our demons and become different. This does not let us off the hook. This is not to say that sin is okay, that you can do whatever you want as long as every once in a while you're able to connect with God and experience fully both the wrath and the joy that this universe, that this world demands. It's not to say that we can be slow or lazy in confronting the worst parts of ourselves, but it is to say that requiring righteousness before relationship that requiring behavior before belonging is putting the cart before the horse. Repentance is the joy of reunion. It's not necessarily the joy of getting everything right at the first attempt. So that's how God can be angry and happy at the same time. Because God knows that despite all of our best intentions we're going to get it wrong and the consequences are going to be bad. But God still takes heart when we express our best intentions. When we admit that we're not doing things the way we want them to be done. When we are willing to criticize ourselves, to confess our sins and try turning towards the right, the righteous path.
If our God is a God of passion, then we ought to be a people of passion as well. We do not dare let ourselves be the frozen chosen, the cold, overly analytical, disconnected from what's happening around us. We have to let ourselves feel. It hurts, but in it is healing. If we can let ourselves feel more than one thing at once. If we focus in on just one emotion, the joy of reconciliation and salvation, we will turn into bland, therapeutic, positivity, pure positivity, preaching Christians that don't have, in my mind, a whole lot of flavor. And if we focus only on the anger, we will give in to despair, which is also a shutting off of emotions, weighing ourselves down, blanketing ourselves with layer after layer of care and worry. But if we can remember faces like these, moments like that shredded couch, and let ourselves be more fully attuned to God's layers of emotion, where we can see and truly grieve when, when upon seeing the harm in the world, but we can still have a light, a heart light and free and full of joy despite it all, then in those moments, we may chart a path towards survival, towards enduring this age. And we may give ourselves a chance to see the new life growing up out of the ashes. Would you be willing to stand with me now for a prayer and then a hymn after the sermon? Please join me for a word of prayer. Lord God, who holds our world in the palms of your hand against you and you uniquely, we have sinned. Forgive us. Let the anger kindled against all of the small and large, the sad, and salacious, the cruel and quiet ways that we destroy one another and we destroy this, your beautiful creation. Let that anger now be overshadowed, overtaken, quenched by the overflowing joy of reconciliation with you. Turn our hearts to you. We know that we do not have the ability, mind control powers over ourselves, much less everyone else. We do not seem able to control our own thoughts, our own desires. And yet we long for you and the rightness that you can bring. 
Let our joy know no bounds. Let it be full-throated, even in the face of the suffering of the world. Amen.